Good morning. Welcome, welcome everyone to our Sunday School Hour. Now, I, I sound worse than I feel, and as I was telling someone, it, it's all in my head. So, but anyway, this morning we were coming, it's an exciting time, we're beginning the Epistle of Colossians, begin our study in there, and it's a wonderful epistle, tremendously rich in theology, and practical applications of theology. So I'm really excited about the study of it. In particular, of course, in Christology, the study of the work and the person of Jesus Christ. It's one of the most abundantly rich epistles in that sense. So let's have a word of prayer and then we'll begin. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come together this morning and have the wonderful privilege of studying your word and Lord, we pray that it, it may not just be an exercise, in intellectual endeavor, Lord, but your word will be transforming, transforming to our hearts. As we hear the word, we study it, and we thank you for this, and we commend this time to you now in the precious name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> this morning, we'll just have the introduction to the Epistle of Colossians. I said it's a short epistle, but packed full of tremendous doctrinal rich uh, content. Colossians is named for the city of Colossae. It's located in Asia Minor uh, at that time, which is modern-day uh, Turkey. And um, the epistle itself was to be read in Colossae and also in the neighboring city of Laodicea, as expressed in chapter 4 and verse 16 of the epistle. And Paul wrote Colossians to warn believers of the doctrinal error and to spur them to continue to grow in Christ as there was not necessarily active uh, false teachers within the church at this time, but certainly there was the beginnings of a heresy, which we'll review this morning, which had the potential of being quite destructive of the church. And Paul, uh, sort of a preventive letter in that sense. Now, the first half of the book of Colossians is a theological treatise that includes one of the most profound, most rich presentations of the person and work of Christ anywhere in the New Testament. And the second half is sort of a, a Christian ethics course addressing multiple areas of Christian life and sort of applying the, the rich content of the first two chapters. Paul progresses from the individual life to the home and the family, from work to the way we should treat others, and so on. And throughout the book, there are different themes that we'll review this morning, but the main theme of the book is the preeminence of Jesus Christ and the Lordship of Jesus Christ, applied to every area of our life and every area of the cosmos. Jesus Christ is Lord of all, and he is preeminent over all. And it is markedly noted throughout the epistle. As we examine the epistle of the Colossians, we find that there's a connection between this letter and that of the Ephesians. So Ephesians and Colossians do have connections. To begin with, they're both part of the so-called prison epistles that were written by Paul. These epistles that are called prison epistles is because they were written by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison. So it makes sense. And those epistles are Ephesians, Ephesians and Philippians, Colossians and Philemon, for prison epistles. But beyond the fact that they are both part of the prison epistles, talking about Ephesians and Colossians, they have been called twin epistles because of the similarities of doctrinal material that's present in both of them. They, they're complementary to one another, and they deal with the same theme, Christ and his church. In the Ephesian letter, the theme is that of the glory of the church in her relation to Christ, relation with Christ, being in Christ. In the Colossian letter, the theme is that of the glory of Christ as the head of the church. Ephesians is ecclesiology, and in its theme, 
dealing mostly and specifically more with the church itself. So it's ecclesiological and deals with the church as the body of Christ, as reflected fullness of Christ and the fullness of him who fills all in all. Colossians is more Christological and presents Christ as the true fullness of plenitude or plenitude of the Godhead, the totality of divine attributes and power. Although Paul addresses many areas in Colossians, the basic application for us today is the total and complete sufficiency and preeminence of Christ in our lives, both for our salvation and for our sanctification. And it's applied to both. Now, we must be on guard for any deviation that would diminish the preeminence of Christ as Lord and Savior. And we will see that as we go through the Epistle of the Colossians more specifically. Now, regarding the author of Colossians, Paul is identified as the author in the first verse, verse 1, as customarily as his, uh, he does in the epistles. And he's also mentioned in chapter 1, verse 23, and in chapter 4, verse 18. So, so three times in the epistle, Paul is mentioned. And from apostolic times until the rise of liberal higher criticism in the 19th century, you know, there was a period in the 19th century where there was a, a huge rise, particularly coming out of Germany, but then to other countries, of a very liberal higher criticism. And so many of the things were put in, in doubt in terms of the Bible, and this was one of them questioning the authorship of Paul and even questioning the authenticity of the Epistle of Colossians. So until then, the church accepted the Pauline authorship of Colossians. However, with the use of liberal higher criticism in the 19th century, Paul's authorship and the Colossians Epistle authenticity was questioned. And so many people began to come up with different reasons why they doubted this was true. Now, the arguments for re rejecting the authenticity of Colossians and the authorship of Paul are, in the long run, completely unreliable and unconvincing. So we're not going to go through all of them. I mean, that, there's a lot of, I mean, the commentaries usually will spend pages and pages going on, which is it's interesting reading, but not for our purposes this morning. Those, uh, they can't stand in the face of the internal and the external testimony to Paul's authorship. Just some notes regarding the authorship. The external testimony to Colossians' authenticity is very impressive. External meaning that even leaders of the early church, such as Eusebius, Origen, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Irenaeus, all attest to the Pauline authorship. So in the early church, there was quite a bit of testimony regarding Pauline authorship of the epistle. There's no evidence that anyone doubted Colossians' authenticity before the 19th century. There's further evidence that Paul wrote this epistle, and it comes from close ties to the epistle of Philemon, which is, we said is one of the other epistles, the, the prison epistle, right? Both Colossians and Philemon mention Timothy's name in the greeting. They both mention Aristarchus, Mark, Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. Paul's other companions all appear in both of the epistles. Both letters contain a message to Archippus, and Onesimus, the slave who is the subject of the epistle of Philemon, appears in Colossians also. So both Colossians and Philemon find uh, Paul in prison, writing them. The evidence shows that Colossians and Philemon were written by the same author at about the same time. And since the Pauline authorship of Philemon, that is one that they haven't really been able to question at all, and it's almost universally accepted, that provides another evidence that he wrote both of them together. Now, the date and place of, of writing of the epistle, the two issues of the epistle's date and its place of writing are closely related. The date assigned to the writing depends on where Paul was imprisoned when he wrote Colossians. And there are three possible places that are given where Paul was imprisoned when he wrote all these prison epistles. The three possibilities that have been suggested are Caesarea, in the north of, of Israel, Ephesus, and Rome. How, however, when these possibilities are examined in the light of the evidence found in the book of Acts and all of Paul's epistles, 
there's no convincing reason for rejecting the traditional view that Paul wrote the prison, prison epistles from Rome, which were written around 60 to 62 AD in that time range. And so it is quite clear from the other biblical evidence that we have that it was written while he was in Rome. Now, just a quick aside here, which I, I find a really encouraging and just a great testimony. When we think of Paul in this imprisonment, that's his, his first imprisonment in Rome. We know that he was there at least two years, and actually we'll know it says that. Uh, we don't know exactly how long he was there. But it's interesting how he got there. You know, he was accused by the Jewish authorities, the Pharisees and Sadducees in Jerusalem. And uh, actually, they took him aside, were beating them. And the Roman soldiers actually put him, in, in, uh, put him under arrest basically to protect them from what was happening. They didn't want to riot on their hands. And eventually, when he claimed his Roman citizenship, therefore, they realized that they had to sort of protect him. Eventually, they took him by night to Caesarea, where he was in prison for a couple of years. Eventually, he claimed he wanted to take his case to Caesar as a Roman citizen. He could do that. And so he had a very eventful trip to Rome with a shipwreck ending up in the island of Malta and eventually getting to, to Rome. Now, the thing that I find fascinating is, and I just want to read a couple of passages, three, actually, one from Acts and two from Philippians, which is the other prison epistle, which just points at God's sovereignty and also how, you know, when he wrote Romans some years before, he expressed to the Romans that he wanted to come to Rome and be with them and as part of a, his prize there, he wanted the purpose of going to Spain eventually. Well, he got there, not the way he expected to get there. But the way he got there actually opened some doors that perhaps he wouldn't have before. I just want to read Acts 28, verse 30 and 31. States, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. So the prison, the prison uh, as a prisoner in Rome, he was allowed basically to be under, under house arrest. So he was chained to a Roman soldier continually. And of course, you know, they, they switched turns. So he continually changed to a Roman soldier. He couldn't go anywhere. But people were allowed to come and visit him. And he was allowed, of course, you know, to, to write the epistles that he wrote and so on. And, and I, then I want to read a couple of passages in Philippians with points, something I think that's it's really wonderful from this whole thing. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 and 14 states, now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment is the, in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. And then at the end of the epistle, chapter 4, and verse 22, he says, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household, newly added to their number, <clears throat> that, that's the end of the quote. So what we find here is that they newly added to their, the number of believers, those who were led to Christ by Paul himself, included soldiers and those who were in the house of Caesar. Now you can imagine a soldier that's you know, changed to Paul for, I don't know, eight, 12 hours, whatever their turns were all day, now they got a good dose of evangelism probably. And so through this means, there was an entrance to the household of Caesar, much bigger perhaps than it would have been if he had gone to, to Rome and just uh, in you know, normal evangelism trips. So the Lord just worked things out sovereignly to just allow this to happen. And, and obviously the reference in Philippians shows that there was a good number of people within the house of Caesar that were, that were believers. So I think that's a, it's just a tremendous uh, effect. Now, as we think of the, look at the city of Colossae itself, Colossae was located in the region of Phrygia in the Roman province of Asia, which is uh, Turkey today. Nearby were Laodicea and Hierapolis, two, uh, there was a, a, three cities, they were part of cities in the Lycus Valley, which is about 100 miles east inland from Ephesus. There's the Meander River that flows south of Ephesus, flows um, 
east-west, well, it actually flows towards the west, but the river goes to the east, and then the, the Lycus River is a tributary to it, and there's the Lycus Valley, and that's where these, these three cities were present. It was located, um, it was a, a great city when the Persian king Xerxes, you know, the, the Heshawars of the Book of Esther marched through it in 481 B.C., so 400-plus years B.C., it was a great city at that point, but it had declined. And um, it was, it sit, because it, it was a great city in the because it was situated at a junction of the main trade route, routes going east from Ephesus and going north to Pergamos. But in Roman times, the road to Pergamos was rerouted through Laodicea, bypassing Colossae. So Laodicea became a much more successful city, and Colossae declined gradually and quite uh, precipitously eventually. In Paul's day, it was a very small city, and it was overshadowed by both Laodicea and Hierapolis. It was largely abandoned by the 8th century and destroyed in the 12th century, and there are some remains, perhaps, I think, have been found, but the city has never been inhabited again, completely uninhabited. The point is that it was a city in decline, not a very large city, and, but yet... Paul wrote an epistle, which is a magnificent epistle to the small congregation. Now, in its heyday, uh, Colossae, as well as the other cities in the Lycos Valley, were very important sources of the wool industry. There were grazing areas that were good for sheep. And also, because of the river, there were deposits there that were used for dye. So they, the wool, the dyed wool from this area was quite... Uh, prosperous and quite well known. And um, 223 to one BC, Antiochus the Great transported Jewish settlers to the region. Most of the settlers, the people that lived there, were Gentiles, but there was a significant number of Jews because they had been transported there previously. And then other Jews came because of the wool trade itself. And there were also mineral baths nearby at Hierapolis, and that attracted people to, to come. But because it had a mixed Gentile and Jew population, although mostly Gentiles, but still a significant number of Jews, it's not surprising that the heresy threatening the Colossian church contained both pagan and Jewish elements. And we'll find that as we go through and look at them. Now, about the church itself at Colossia, Luke tells us that during Paul's three-year stay at Ephesus on his third missionary journey. Um, in Acts 19.10, it states, all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord. As Paul was ministering there in Ephesus, there were people from all over Asia that came to, to Ephesus, and many were saved and, and took the gospel back. So Paul never left Ephesus as far as we know, but his converts spread the gospel throughout the province of Asia Minor. And it was at this time that the churches of Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae got their start. But Paul was not the one who went and founded the churches. Since Colossians, um, he states in chapter 2 and verse 1 uh, that they had never seen him in person in the Epistle of Colossians. So he's never been there. However, and by the way, in Acts, it doesn't mention Paul's founding a church at Colossae or even visiting there. But the man of God that the Lord used to start the church, it was a man named Epaphras. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 5 and 7, we learn that Colossians had heard the gospel from him. He was someone from Colossae, came to Ephesus, was saved and discipled by Paul, and went back and founded the church at Colossae. Epaphras was probably converted to Christ uh, through the ministry of Paul, as we said. Now, as we look at the purpose of the letter, and by the way, Epaphras is mentioned, and we'll, and we'll go in detail through the epistle. We'll get to know him a little better. The purpose of the letter. Now, the purpose of this letter is to provide the resources that the Colossian Christians needed to fend off some kind of false teaching to which they were exposed. As we said, it's not necessarily outright false teachers within the church outwardly, but Epaphras was alarmed enough that there was some of these heresies that were beginning to take root, 
that he made the trip and from Colossae to Rome where Paul was, it's probably about 1,100, 1,200 mile trip. And so it, it's a significant trip, especially in, the, in that time to be able to go there. So he was concerned enough to go visit Paul in Rome in prison and then bring what he had and then Paul wrote Colossians in response. Paul's language and manner of dealing with the problem suggests that certain Christians in Colossae had adopted and were advocating an approach to Christianity that stood in contrast to the teaching that the Colossians had received from Epaphras, from Paul and through Epaphras. And um, it was judged to be quite dangerous to the future of the church. And so Paul responded with this epistle. Now look, going to review a little bit of what the Colossian heresy, so-called, is, because there is a um, significant amount of information in terms of from the epistle itself, helps us to sort of determine what was going on. Now, Epaphras was a very diligent laborer. We can see that. We'll see that in the epistle when Paul refers to him in, in different, very dedicated. But the Colossian church was in jeopardy. The heresy that had arisen concerned Epaphras so much that he made, as we said, the trip to Rome. And um, though the Colossian church hadn't been directly infected outwardly, as, we can, as far as we can tell, Paul writes to warn them against its dangers. So Colossians is more of a preventive letter, in a sense, than more than a, a curative letter. It's not surprising, since there was a mixture of both Gentiles and Jews in the church of Colossae, that the heresy threatened them contained elements of both paganism and Judaism. The pagan culture in which the Colossian church existed worshipped many, many gods, and um, they were worshipped during the Roman times, the time of the church, and many of the Colossian believers no doubt found the, the pull of the old way of life quite strong. So many were in danger of falling back towards this type of uh, multi-God worship. Paul warned them against that danger and exhorted them to continue in the faith. In chapter 1 and verse 23 states, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. And then in chapter 2 and verse 6, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And in chapter 3 and verse 2, it says, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. The world and the flesh exerted a strong pull on the Colossians. Yet an even greater threat came from Satan, the, the source of all false teachings, of course. The main thrust of Paul's letter is to counteract the influence of false doctrine. And some have seen in the Colossian heresy elements of what in the second century became Gnosticism. We've talked a little bit about that in different... Gnosticism, of course, became fully developed more in the second century after uh, AD. But at this time, there were already incipient forms of it, and we see it in Colossians, certain forms of Gnosticism, and we will look at what that meant here. And some also have noticed similarities with the teachings of the Essene sect of Judaism. Now, the, the Colossian heresy, however, can't be identified with any particular historical system, but it contained two basic elements. One was false Greek philosophy, and the other was Judaistic legalism and ceremonialism. So we'll look first at what the false philosophy that was prevalent there looked like. The Greeks loved knowledge and prided themselves on the sophistication of their philosophical systems. Uh, they scorned the gospel message as too simplistic. And actually, you can, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 22 and 23, Paul sort of alludes to this. Gentiles which are mainly Greek, wanted proof by means of human reason and philosophy. Through ideas that could set forth, they could discuss and debate and back and forth look at different ideas. Through ideas that, like the Athenians, remember when Paul went to Athens, he went to discuss with philosophers in, in Mars Hill. 
And um, when Paul visited, they were not sincere with no interest in divine truth, but merely wanting to argue intellectual novelty. And it says in Acts 17, 21, now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting them there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So it was a tremendous desire simply to engage in philosophical discussion without necessarily looking at the truth. And to them, Jesus Christ alone was not adequate. Salvation involved Christ plus knowledge. They claimed visions they had supposedly seen as the basis for the superior knowledge. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, it says, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. So here, Paul directly attacks the fact of these are just fleshly uh, ideas of, uh, they had. Now, Paul says of such mystics that their minds were inflated without cause. This claim to superior knowledge by the people that were uh, saying these things reaches full flower in the second century, as we said, in, in Gnosticism. But already here we see one of the, uh, the features of Gnosticism, which is the person that promotes this has a cer certain special knowledge that is attained either by visions or some other means of attaining this special knowledge, and so the initiated have to have this special knowledge, other you really can't have salvation. The name comes from the Greek word for knowledge, gnosis, and although the Colossian heresy was not Gnosticism full developed, it included some similar concepts. According to the Colossian heresy, God was good, but matter was evil. That's similar to what eventually then the, the Gnostics uh, proposed. Because the good God could not have created evil matter, they postulated a descending series of emanations from the divine being. So you have a God who is good, all matter is bad, so God couldn't have created matter, therefore there were a series of emanations that came from God. So at some point, those emanations become worse, so eventually one of those that was bad enough, they, they created matter. And so, it was one of the lesser emanations far removed from God that created matter. In this scheme, Jesus was simply one of the higher emanations. So then it's, there's a syncretistic aspect to it, not just putting different things together. So some of them would have this philosophy and then incorporate Jesus into the system. But basically, Jesus was not the Son of God, as proposed biblically, but he was simply one of the higher emanations, not one of the lower ones, which were, which were worse. But still not the Son of God. Now, those uh, demons formed a barrier between man and God, according to their system. And only through superior knowledge, coupled with the help from the good emanations, could one break through to salvation. Thus, angels were obje objects of worship, and we'll see that reflected in chapter 2 and verse 18, because the help of the angels was essential for salvation. And the Colossian heretics denied the humanity of Christ, of course, because the fact that humanity, physical uh, beings were bad. Since matter was viewed as evil, it was inconceivable that a good emanation, as they thought, said Jesus Christ was, could take up a human body. So to combat that teaching, Paul stresses that Jesus did become a man. In verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 22, he states, he has now reconcile you in his fleshly body through death. So specifically counteracting completely the, the teaching of the, the heretics. The Colossian teaching also denied the deity of Christ. Since God being good was the very antithesis of evil matter, God could never become man. And so both the deity and the humanity of Christ was denied. So Paul states, speaking of Christ in verse 9 of chapter 2, in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. You see, counteracting that teaching. The Colossian heresy also denied the sufficiency of Christ for salvation. So Paul attack, attacks that false teaching repeatedly. He wrote of his desire to present every man complete in Christ. And that's in chapter 1, verse 28. 
in chapter 2 and verse 3, it is, Christ that, it is in Christ that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. And in chapter 2 and verse 9, all the fullness of deity dwells in Christ in bodily form. So Paul sums up Christ's sufficiency by stating that in him you have been made complete. And that's chapter 2 and verse 10. So specifically counteracting the, the, the scheme of the false philosophers. Now, the other part of the heresy was Judaistic legalism. The Colossian heretics also embraced elements of Jewish ceremonialism. They taught that circumcision was necessary for salvation, along with some other aspects of the ceremonial law. Like the doctrine that superior knowledge was necessary for salvation, this teaching denied the sufficiency of Christ because it added other works such as circumcision and other works of um, the, the law. It added works to salvation which Paul rejected saying, in Christ you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, directly attacking that heresy. And that was in chapter 2 and verse 11. Now, the errorists or false teachers also advocated asceticism. And asceticism is a practice of strict self-denial and harsh treatment of the body. With the, because supposedly this then leads to a higher spiritual life. And of course, we, throughout history, we find different sects and different even sects of you know, outshoots of Christianity that involve in asceticism saying that you know, self-flagellation or denying the body and so on lead to a higher spiritual life. The ascetics renounce worldly pleasures that they believe distract from spiritual growth and enlightenment and then live a life of abstinence, of complete austerity and extreme self-denial. And so Paul asks, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? And this is in chapter 2, verses 20 and 22 of Colossians. And all these refers to things that are destined to perish with the using in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. So he condemned this teaching as matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are, are of no value against fleshly indulgence. And that's in chapter 2 and verse 23. Now, obviously, asceticism plays no part in salvation, biblically speaking. But Paul attacked the, the heresy directly here in Colossians. Now, still another aspect of the Colossian heresy was an emphasis on keeping the Jewish dietary laws and observing holy days, such as the Sabbath and festivals and the new moon, etc. So Paul tells the Colossians not to be intimidated, that such ceremonialism was not necessary for salvation. In verse two in chapter, I mean, chapter two and verse 16, he states, therefore let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Those things, Paul argues were but a shadow of the things to come. The reality is found in Christ, and we find that in chapter 2 and verse 17. So the heresy threatening the Colossian church was a mixture of the Greek philosophy and the Jewish legalism. And although it's a mixture that at first sight seems to be quite uh, you know, unusual, there is a, a president. One of the major sects of the first century of Judaism was the Essenes. We mentioned it a little bit earlier. Like the Colossians' errors, they were strict ascetics. And they believed that matter was evil and spirit was good, thus sharing the incipient uh, Gnostic trait of the Colossian errorist. They were very strict legalists, very rigid legalists, even surpassing the Pharisees in that regard. And the Jewish historian Josephus, who was at one time a member of the Essenes, mentions their worship of angels. So you know, 
all of these qualities that were present in the heresy in the Colossae were present with the Essenes. So there were there probably some influence from them here. Now, although the evidence is not sufficient to equate the Colossian areas with the Essenes, there are definite parallels. And at least the existence of the Essenes demonstrates that a mixture of Greek philosophy and Jewish legalism like that of Colossae was evident in, in, in some places. And inasmuch as both groups denied the sufficiency of Christ, the answer to both then is the same. Christ is sufficient. Now, as we look in the little, just a general overview then of the teaching we find in the epistle of the Galatians, although the, the Colossian heresy contained many diverse elements at its core, was the denial of the sufficiency of Christ for salvation. That is, whether it's from one side, from the, the, the philosophy of the Greeks, or is it from the legalism of uh, Judaizers, both of them basically denying the sufficiency of Christ for salvation. Not surprisingly, the sufficiency of Christ becomes the main theme of Colossians. The key theme throughout Colossians is the centrality and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That, that's what's such a rich epistle in Christology. The, the most famous Christological passage is in what is called you know, the hymn of Christ in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, where Paul asserts Christ's centrality in both creation and new creation. This passage, chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, is a tremendous, uh, it's called a hymn, a Christological hymn. And the uh, Christ's preeminence and centrality in both creation and new creation, because he speaks both of creation in terms of the cosmos and speaks of the new creation in terms of the believer. Using language and concept from both the creation account and from the Old Testament, teaching about wisdom and word, the logos, Paul begins generally by announcing Christ's unique relationship to God. He says Christ is his image, God's image, and Christ's supremacy over creation Christ is the firstborn over creation. We find that in verse, 50, in verse 15 of chapter 1. And so these two Christological themes, the fact that Christ is the image of God, his supremacy over both creation and over the new creation of the believer, then dominates the epistle. Indeed, the heart of Paul's Argument is found here in these two themes because Christ stands in a unique relationship to God and he and only he is able to bring all things in creation back under God's sovereignty and thereby provide believers with the resources that they need to live and to flourish in a world that's dominated by hostile powers. Christ's relationship to God is emphasized again in this, in this hymn, when in verse 19 claims that all God's fullness dwells in Christ. All God's fullness dwells in Christ. And Paul repeats the same point in chapter 2 and verse 9. And in both of these texts, Paul immediately relates this claim about God's unique and full presence in Christ to the significance for the world that is reconciling all things to God, that's chapter 1 and verse 20, and for believers, when he says we are full in Christ, and that's chapter 2 and verse 10. So we can see this applied both to the creation and to the new creation in believers. And these passages reveal the intimate relationship between theology and practice, and, and this is where it becomes a really important aspect of the epistle for us. The fact that the Christian life depends on biblical doctrine. Theology, then, good, true theology leads to true living. Now, uh, only if Christ is who Paul claims he is can he provide the fullness that the false teachers are claiming to offer in their alternative construct of spiritual life. So, of course, then that's what Paul is counteracting uh, the, the teaching this way. The false teachers sought God 
in Christ, the fullness of deity was manifest. Chapter 2, verse 9. The false teachers sought the superior knowledge necessary for salvation. Paul states, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Chapter 2 and verse 3. They worshipped angels, thinking angelic beings could help them attain salvation. Paul wrote that believers are complete in Christ. Chapter 2 and verse 10. They do not need angels to help them for salvation. They practice asceticism and observe Jewish holy days. Those things are but the shadow, whereas the substance is Christ, Paul counters in chapter 2 and verse 17. So we can see Paul countering all of these false beliefs. Christ is the central theme, theme of all of Paul's letters, of course. If we look at the epistles, Christ is central to all of Paul's epistles, okay? And much of the language about Christ can be found in these other epistles as well. However, the amount of references to Christ and the prominence of these references that we find throughout the epistle of Colossians caused this epistle to stand out in, the, in this regard, in the regard of Christ's work and Christ's person. The Christology of Colossians has a very practical concern to demonstrate the sufficiency of Christ for the believers, every spiritual need. The sufficiency of Christ for every need that we have as believers. Christ and Christ alone as head of the body empowers Christian living with a growth which is from God. And that's in chapter 2 and verse 19. And believers have been brought to fullness in him as they die and are raised with him to new life. And we'll find this in chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, and in verse 20 of that chapter also. So believers must continually orient themselves to the all-encompassing Lord. Believers are to walk in Christ, that is, to live a life patterned after His. We find that in chapter 2 and verse 6. There can be no doubt then about Paul's intention to make the preeminence and supremacy of Christ a central theme in his response to the false teachers in the epistle of Colossians. The theme of Christ's sufficiency for Christian spiritual experience is also woven throughout the fabric of the letter. So not just past, we looked at this Christological hymn we looked at in chapter 1, but throughout the fabric of the letter we will see as we study more in detail the different aspects of the letter that this same theme is woven throughout the whole epistle. Virtually every a statement about Christ in the Christ hymn, the verse 15 and 20 of chapter 1, is picked up and applied to later on in the epistle. The Christology of Colossians is eminently practical, though. It's not just uh, theoretical, it's not just uh, intellectual, but it's eminently practical in, in application to our daily lives as believers. And it provides the basis on which Paul can claim that genuine Christian spiritual experience can be found only in Christ. And that is abundantly clear throughout the epistle. Now the person and work of Christ, being the theological heart of Colossians, but there are other themes that, uh, of the letter that relate to Christ. The Christ hymn, which is referred to in chapter 1, emphasizes Christ's role in relationship to the entire created world. He is firstborn over creation, chapter 1, verse 15. And this prominence is seen in the fact that he is the instrument, the goal, and the sustaining power of the universe. And we'll see that in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. See, Christ holds the same central position, though, in the new creation, in believers, as it is through his death that all things are reconciled to God, chapter 1, verse 20. Another theme that is that Christ is the head of the church. But as verse 19 of chapter 2 strongly suggests, Christ's headship also involves sustenance, and notice the maintenance, maintenance of the church. Just as the ancients thought of the head physiologically as directing, the directing source of the body's movement, so Christ, Paul affirms, is the directing source of the body of his people, that is, the church. 
Only by staying connected to his head, therefore, can Christians grow. There's also an emphasis on the significance and power of the gospel in Colossians. Paul addresses in the letter the source and the finality of God's revelation in Christ. See, the false teachers were apparently suggesting that Christians needed to go beyond the gospel. We need the gospel plus something else. And the gospel that Epaphras had taught the Colossians. In order to experience spiritual fullness, they needed to go beyond it. But Paul weaves language about the power of the gospel into the letter itself throughout the letter. This emphasis frames the first major section of the letter. Then chapter 1, verses 3 through 23, that first section, there's an emphasis here in terms of the cause of the gospel. The Colossians have heard the truth from Epaphras, the gospel, and learned it from it about the source about the, the secure hope they have. So in chapter 1 and verses 5 through 8, Paul asserts that. Now this gospel itself, Paul emphasizes, is powerful and is productive. It has led to growth among the Colossians as well as in the rest of the world. He expresses that in chapter 1 and verse 6. After reminding the Colossians of what God has done for them through his supreme and preeminent Son, Paul then concludes the section reminding them that they will be able to appear faultless before God only if they do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. That's chapter 1, verse 23. So again, calling believers to stay firm in the hope of the gospel itself and not move from it, standing firm in it. The next section, chapter 1, verses 24 through chapter 2, and verse 5, also makes significant claims about the finality of God's revelation in Christ. Paul's task is to pre present to the Colossians the word of God in its fullness. And we find that stated in chapter 1, verse 25. The word that unveils the mystery of Christ himself dwelling among the Gentiles. It's by understanding this mystery, the mystery that is bound up in Christ himself, that the Colossians will be able to understand the word and God's way in it. And then he states in chapter 2 and verse 3, for all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. Chapter 2 and verse 3. The key transitional verses then in the letter, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, carry on the same theme. Now in the next section chapter 2, verses 8 to 23, then there's a con contrast between human tradition in, in, verses, uh, in chapter 2, verse 8 and verse 22, and that divine tradition. There's a contrast between the human tradition and the divine tradition. The gospel which manifests the reality of the new covenant truth. And we find that referred in chapter 2, verse 17. So again, then he asserts the new covenant and the gospel. In, in the final, in section chapter 3, verses 1 through chapter 4 and verses 6, Paul urges the community, the church, to dwell on the message about Christ in its communal activities. Chapter 3 and verse 16. In other words, in, 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 the, in the activities as a community of Christ, the, the body of Christ. It's the same message that Paul is determined with the aid of the Colossians' prayers to continue to proclaim. And that's in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. By the way, we're not reading all these verses because we won't finish them, but if, if you like, you look them up then. And the complementary truth is the importance that Paul accords to the Colossians learning and knowing this word. So then he emphasizes, of course, along with the preeminence, centrality of Christ, the preeminence of the word. As the Colossians have truly understood God's grace through Epaphras, so he prays that they might be filled with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. So he, of course, here refers to the, to the Holy Spirit in chapter 1, verse 9. Growing in the knowledge of God. And that's in verse 10. So we easily... You know, can read over these passages and these many assertions about the gospel without giving them the attention they deserve. So 
as, as you read through the epistle of Colossians, you will see many instances where the gospel is alluded to as well as, as the word, although in, in perhaps not in, in such an overt way. Yet when considering their totality and in light of the false teaching, the power and finality of God's word in Christ emerges as a key theme of the letter, the power of the word in Christ. One other theme is that the Christian life must be rooted in Christ. He states he is the head who supplies power to the whole body, chapter 2 and verse 19. It is by our experience in him, in Christ, that renewal in the image of Christ takes place. We see that in chapter 3 and verse 10. So our very mindset must be governed by the things above, where Christ is and with whom we have been raised to new life, Find that in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. So in conclusion, the theme of the book can be summed up in the words of Colossians 3.11. Christ is all in all. He is God, chapter 2, verse 9. He is the creator, chapter 1, verse 16. He's Savior, chapter 1, verse 20, and chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, and he's head of the church, chapter 1, 18. See, it was Paul's desire in writing Colossians that we would realize that Christ has come to have first place in everything, as he states in chapter 1 and verse 18. So that sort of sums up our uh, introduction to Colossians. Now I just want to make a couple of comments, and then we'll pray and we'll go to the discussions. Uh, Colossians takes about 15 minutes to read. It's not a very long epistle. So I would exhort everyone to at least once a week, more often if you can. I mean, it would be wonderful if you do it daily, but take 15 minutes and read through it because it's wonderful as, as we do that how these things be, be, you know, start just uh, being shown the richness, richness of the doctrine that's present there. And um, just... As we go through and more in, in specifically the next few weeks, I think it's going to be a, a, just a wonderful study. All right, let, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this wonderful word that we find in the Epistle of Colossians. We thank you, Lord, for the Apostle Paul I, and for your working sovereignly through him so that not only the Colossians could benefit from the word present in this epistle, but we can do so now, Lord. And we pray over the coming weeks as we study this epistle, that you will open our eyes, that we may behold wonderful things from your word. And we ask this in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.